I uh, bring you also greetings from our lovely Pathfinders and staff who is uh, enjoying their camp in Lake Paris group campground. Last night I was with them uh, to do worship uh, and I went home and while they enjoyed the mosquitoes. Uh, so very grateful for that. You, you promise that you won't tell them, right? Um, but it is so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning to worship. Would you bow your heads one more time as we begin with prayer? God, we thank you so much for this beautiful day, the day that you have instituted from the very beginning, Lord, to rest in you and to enjoy your presence. And Lord, we long to do just that. In the next few moments, we ask for your spirit to guide us as we open your word. Lord, I ask that you speak to me and through me once more. May we leave this place having known that you have truly been with us. In Jesus' name, amen. At the end of my college experience, uh, there's this thing called senior interviews, um, where they invited all the, the conference administrators from all the five conferences nearby here, you know, Southeastern, Southern, Nevada, Utah, uh, Hawaii, and Arizona, that are really under the umbrella of the Pacific Union Conference, if you're familiar with our union system. Uh, they would fly out and come to Lassier University to meet and to interview our senior major, uh, excuse me, uh, our religion major uh, students, those who are interested in becoming a, a pastor. Uh, it was both a stressful and a, uh, an amazing experience at the same time. Because you get to write up what you believe on paper, you know, and you prepare, and etc. That's a really good, amazing experience. Being interrogated for hours is probably not as fun as um, you can imagine. So when, when the interviews were done, uh, we would anticipate a call from any of these administrators. Um, they would encourage us, the, the, the faculty would encourage us to send thank you cards to the offices of these administrators. Um, I would hand deliver them if they were close by. Um, and then we would send up following, uh, follow up inquiries to, you know, just kind of remind them that we exist. <laughs> and uh, after a certain amount of time had passed, <laughs> only Denny got that joke. And so, as you can imagine, when I didn't get a call that year, it was quite devastating for me. I was quite sad. So I went through this traumatic experience where my self-thought was, oh man, I'm not good enough. I'm such a failure. Or maybe I'm not called to do this. And so I wrestled with, with these thoughts and I even questioned my calling. And for the first time, I remember experiencing shame about myself. Brene Brown, a qualitative researcher from University of Texas, defines shame this way, as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I was feeling 
that. I was asking my friends and some of my spiritual mentors if there's anything that they had seen in me that I could work on to improve myself. You know, most of them try to encourage me and to remind me, you know, Gatra, it's not, it's not really about who you are. It's just maybe there's a lot more that we are not seeing. Uh, and so I just kind of went on. The next year, I interviewed again the second time. Uh, and eventually, I received a call to serve in this conference. Praise God. And to this day, I am very, very grateful. I didn't realize, though, how much of this traumatic experience really impacted me until I was serving as a full-time pastor years later. When one of my ministry leaders, who for some reason would refuse to acknowledge me as a pastor, it didn't matter where we were, whether it be social gatherings, uh, meetings, or, or uh, ministry functions, he would just not acknowledge me. And I don't mean just like title, you know, like he wouldn't call me, certainly he wouldn't call me pastor, gotcha, but he would, just, he would just not acknowledge functionally as well. I remember being at a church on Sabbath afternoon in a ministry gathering that he was responsible to plan and to oversee. And they they ran into a, a, a situation where it required problem solving. And given that I was the only pastoral presence there, he very publicly avoided asking for my input and help. And then he went on to solve the problem with an, another elder who was present there. And I knew this because the elder eventually consulted with me for help. And in that moment, I felt very small, insignificant, and unworthy of love and belonging. It's as if I was transported back to the time I was wrestling and questioning my calling. And I felt this overwhelming sense of, I'm just not good enough. And I know what I've shared is something that is quite specific but I wonder if you have also been in similar situations before. Perhaps you have had moments where you felt so small and so insignificant because what you've done or perhaps what you haven't done. Perhaps you've had moments where you thought to yourself, I'm just not good enough. Perhaps you've thought to yourself that you're unworthy or unhappy for yourself. The same author, Brene Brown, mentioned in her um, TED Talk entitled Listening to Shame, she's someone who's done a lot of research on shame, she says that guilt is a focus on behavior while shame is a focus on self. Let me say that again. The, that guilt is a focus on behavior while shame is a focus on self. Guilt, she continues on, really is saying, I did something bad, while shame is, I am bad. You see the difference? Yeah, I hope you do. But the trouble is this. When we're not careful, we can easily mistake anything that we've done into shame rather than guilt. And it's awfully dangerous. Brown further points out in her book entitled Daring Greatly, 
she says that she found this profound difference between shame and guilt. And it really is this. While guilt can be adaptive, next slide, please. While guilt can be adaptive and helpful, shame is never helpful nor productive. In fact, shame is much more likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behavior than the solution or cure. Next slide. Shame is never helpful nor productive. In other words, we need to get very clear on the difference between the guilt and shame. Because when shame is not acknowledged nor identified in our experience, as in if we can't notice it, nor can we call it out, or we are aware the fact that we are part of the contributing of that shaming, right, in our experience, it can lead us to some really dark and dangerous places. And it can cause us to think very badly of ourselves and of others. But today I want to remind all of us, church family, that God created each one of us fearfully and wonderfully made in His image. And though we live in this reality filled with the consequences of sin, remember that God stepped into this world, our world, and He became sin for us. Jesus took on our shame, not just so that we might have hope of eternal life with him. It is. He did so for that. But also for us to receive healing from him in our brokenness. And for us to have complete restoration in him. And though shame is so powerful, it is. And it can bring us to our knees. I would submit to you this afternoon... That God's grace is even more powerful to bring us healing, freedom, and transformation. And I want to just talk a little bit more about this today. If you brought your Bibles with you, turn with me to John chapter 8. And you can also follow along on the screens. John chapter 8 beginning in verse 1 to 11. We find a beautiful story of Jesus interceding for one particular woman. I invite you to track it with me there. John chapter 8. You see, Jesus had been teaching in the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees have been trying day after day their best shots to trap, to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use to charge him. This one particular day... We're told that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. In case you missed it, I can't think of anything else more shaming than what this woman is going through. And so they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses... We're commanded to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to put charges on Jesus. 
The religious leaders dragged in a woman that they found and caught in the act of adultery, right? Now, this brings up many questions. Yeah? Have they set up the woman? If not, where is her partner in this crime? I mean, it takes two to commit the act. And if the woman was caught in the act, surely the man was caught in the very act as well at the same time. So then why have the authorities failed to bring him to Jesus for judgment? After all, that man would also be guilty under the same law in Deuteronomy of Moses, the law of Moses. And it's telling that they weren't even interested in a fair trial because they didn't even bring the required two witnesses for a proper trial. Jesus didn't even say a word. And I think Jesus, in my imagination, I think Jesus saw through what they were doing and he felt disgusted by the idea that the religious leaders would shame a woman as a pawn in their scheme to trap him. And instead of saying anything, you know the story, Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Though we are not told exactly what Jesus had written on, that, on the ground that day, it's clear that he took the attention away from this woman and onto himself when he started writing on the ground. And so they kept asking him, they kept pressing on him to get him to say something. But Jesus interceded for this woman in a way that draws the spotlight of shame away from her and refocuses it on all those who are around. And then he says this, Beautiful words that we all know. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. But I love the next part. He just, and then he went back to write on the ground. I love what also happens next here. And it's got to be one of the most beautiful scenes in the Gospels, in my opinion. Because we're told in verse 9... When they heard it, it's quite interesting. It says, when they heard it. Yes, I looked up the Greek, looked up all the translations. It is clear. It's, it's when they've heard it. It's not when they've seen it. It's when they've heard it, which is kind of interesting to wrap our imagination around. But it's when they've heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones until Jesus was just alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to, the, to her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She looked to Jesus, No one, Lord. And Jesus said these words, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, Sin no more. Imagine being found in your most vulnerable moments. And instead of being met with condemnation, 
we're confronted with God's inexhaustible grace toward us. Imagine how, imagine how freeing this must have been for this woman. God steps in and extends his loving arms for her and for us to embrace us. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are, my friends, still a child of God. I love how Ellen White describes in her prophetic imagination of what happens next for this woman. She says that this was to her the beginning of a new life. And I get an amen. That seems a little quiet now. A life of purity and peace devoted to the service of God. Next slide. This penitent woman, that's just a fancy word saying, this sorrowful woman became one of his steadfast followers. And with self-sacrificing love and devotion... She repaid his forgiving mercy. If I might just highlight an observation for us to consider today. And that's this. It's really unfortunate that our first reactions to someone's wrongdoing or to someone's sin is to condemn them and to shame them. And this story reminds us that Jesus always wants to intercede for us. And the problem is that we live in such a society that is so prone to use shame as a motivation or a tool for change. And the things that we don't know, or the people that we don't agree with, or the people that believe differently than us, and it's much easier for us to just demonize them instead of actually wanting to sit down to get to know and to understand their story. We fear what we don't understand. And what we fear, we end up just, we judge them as evil. And while the world eggs us on to judge others, the calling for us Christians is much, much different. We're called to the way of forbearance with one another, to practice grace, and to not condemn and to use shame on others, and to love others the way Jesus loves. I love listening to the answer that Giannis gave. In sports, there's no failure. There's bad days, there's good days. I feel like he's describing life in this Christian life in this Christian race there's no failure there's good days bad days doesn't mean you're a failure when you've done something or you haven't done something but just when we think well this is what happens in our world this surely does not happen in our churches, right? <laughs> Think again. And remember, this happened, the story that we're looking at, happened in the temple. 
Christians are not exempt from having the same capacity to judge and to shame from the rest of the world. Yet we are called to be different. The truth is that this is also our story, church family. Whenever we act out of rage and shame. This is our story whenever we are more interested in proving someone else's wrong than living a life that God had called us to live, to love others. This is our story whenever we take it upon ourselves to judge another harshly. And it's our story when we resort to anything else but love and grace. The same love and grace that Jesus extends to all of us, even today. One of my favorite authors puts it kind of uniquely this way. He says, grace seems unfair until you need some, until we need some. And our scripture reading this morning tells us that God loved us and he forgave us when we were still defined by our shame. Paul says, but God shows his love this way. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. We were still sinners. And if I might add, Ellen White says that Christ died for us, and yes, even at the risk of us not choosing him. He still went on with the plan. And that as Christians, perhaps we will fall short of this, of echoing this kind of love perfectly. But it is still the very call on our lives. And as Jesus said, to forgive others, to love others, how God forgives and loves you. And I'm afraid that many of us might have missed this. And instead, we are so quick to judge, to criticize, and to shame. We are so conditioned to see the wrong in others. We are so conditioned to want to see the sin in another human being before we want to get to know the person and their story. It is sad that in the church, we are the only army that shoots at our wounded and please don't misunderstand me for condoning sinful or moral behavior, immoral behavior, excuse me. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But what if, what if, instead of crucifying people, we remember someone had been crucified for us? And what if instead we turn that energy to restore others with the spirit of gentleness with one another? What if instead of turning to shame, we extend grace to one another? And yes, in, even in our vulnerable moments, just as Jesus did. What if we call for an end to shame in our churches and in our society, what if the church could be the first place that we end shame, period? What if instead we can cultivate a culture of grace that is so pervasive that the entire world, the entire world, I must be hungry. 
that the entire world, when they see us, they'll know that we are Christians because of how we love one another. Not just because we kept the Sabbath for this old time or consented to a number of fundamental beliefs. They are important. Don't get me wrong. But everyone will know that we are his by the way we love and treat one another. In the past couple years, there's been so much polarization that I, we can't tolerate even being in the same room as someone we don't believe with let alone to love them. And if you pay closer attention, there's so much shame and shaming all around us, everywhere. What if the church could lead the conversation forward and to show to the entire world that we can end shame everywhere? There's a saying in law enforcement that I visibly came to recognize in 2021 when I came to interview here, actually, uh, at Azure Hills. We were at the seminary at the time in Michigan, and so I flew in here in 2021 to interview. I remember staying at, the, uh, at a hotel in Orange County because, believe it or not, it was cheaper to fly into John Wayne, Orange County, and then to stay there um, at the time at least. So when I arrived at a hotel that I was staying at, um, I remember seeing at least 10 uh, units of uh, police cars and a SWAT truck. And I thought to myself, oh no, did I book the wrong place? And I remember I was checking in. I was curious. I asked one of the, the officers, I'm like, uh, what's, what's, what's up? And one of them uh, said that, well, we got a call about a couple fighting. Oh, okay. And I looked around, I'm like, there's at least about 20 of them, like, dressed with everything. Um, a couple fighting, huh? There's, there's a lot of you. And then as she was walking away and going into the elevator and going upstairs, uh, noticing that I was counting, she told me, well, there's strength in numbers. And to me, that makes sense. There's strength. In numbers. What if, instead of turning against each other, we acknowledge that we've been, what we've been through, this pandemic, political unrest, and the things that we witnessed the last couple years, and instead we turn to each other for support and compassion. We can be stronger together when we extend love mercy, and grace to each other the way Jesus does to all of us. I want to close with a story that, of, of what happened uh, between that ministry leader and I. And I'm so grateful that God has helped me to identify some of these shame triggers in my experience, in my life. And one of those moments that God helped me with was when I received a call for an anointing service one evening. It was, as it turns out, for the wife of the ministry leader that I had mentioned earlier. She had been 
struggling with an aggressive type of cancer for a number of years. And there was a call from one of the pastors to be there to perform the anointing service because they didn't think that she was going to make it that night, uh, past that night. And so when I got the call, I was terrified, obviously, just being honest. And part of me didn't want to go, but I was the only pastoral presence there that night. And so I got ready. I, I was preparing. At the same time, I was preparing in my head because what to say and things like that because I really didn't want to see him, just being honest. I just wanted to get in, say what I've practiced, and get out. And I remember parking. I got to the house. I parked. I got out. And as I approached the door, um, they started wailing inside. And like my head, I processed through the, the worst-case scenarios. You probably not, don't want me to mention what those scenarios are. As you can imagine, I, as I approached the door, I knocked, but I collected myself for a bit. And sure enough, he opened the door. And so I explained myself, hey, uh, I understand there was a request for an anointing service. I'm just here to represent the pastoral staff. Um, and there was a, a little bit of a pause there, and he looked straight at me and sighed. She just passed. And a little while after that, I remember uh, in a memorial service the, that at one point we were all helping. It was kind of an all hands on deck. And at one point he found me and he shook my hand. Um, and he hugged me. And he said, Pastor, I am so sorry. But thank you for being there. And I tell you this not to uh, gain pity or whatnot. I tell you this because this has to be probably the most uh, meaningful experiences that I've had as a pastor. And him coming up to me and hugging me and saying, I'm sorry, but thank you for being there. It's got to mean a lot to me. A lot to me in, in my discernment, in, in my processing, and it's just a lot. I still have yet to process this fully. But one of the things that has helped me, uh, that God has helped me through this moment, is that to help me distinguish and make the distinction between who I am versus what I get to do. Sure, my title is a pastor, youth pastor, but I'm still a child of God first before I am a youth pastor, right? And it's, God has helped me distinguish as well. While what, who I am will always kind of go into what I get to do, and that's beautiful. But we should always be careful about the things that we get to do and how that defines and dictates who we are. Before anything else, we are children of God. Remember that, church family. And we can be stronger, I believe that, together. 
if we turn to each other with compassion and grace. Amen.